So Pastor Walt and his family are out of town today. Um, if you are visiting today, we do hope that you will visit again next week and experience a more normal week here at Cornerstone. But we are very grateful today that we have uh, Pastor Ben Wickner to, um, to come and preach for us. Uh, pa Pastor Ben is a church planter in Rockville, Maryland. Um, he is planting a church called Cross Community, and that church is multi-ethnic and multinational. And our church has been partnering with him in what God has been calling him to do. Um, and so we invite our brother, Pastor Ben, to come and preach God's word for us. Well, good morning, Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. Oh, you are uh, as lively as, uh, you know, the first service, they called themselves, they actually said to me that we're the frozen chosen. I did. And so I'm expecting this one to be really lively, and that you guys were very lively. But I don't know how I feel about being called the abnormal part of you guys' service, so, but... Although it's probably true, if you get to know us, uh, we are actually a fairly abnormal church um, in various ways, and that's, it's relevant to God's Word today, because we're going to be going over uh, Acts chapter 16, and if you have your Bibles open there, you can turn there, and I think it's going to be on the screen as well, but I'm uh, starting up a, a series for our church called, it's from the teaching through the book of Philippians, and the title of the, the series is called A Message for a Motley Church. I named that only in part because I was a Motley Crew fan when I was a kid. <laughs> but no, it really has to do with the fact that um, uh, the Church of Philippi, as it was being planted, is, was planted, as we'll see, with a very diverse group of people. And our church is a remarkably diverse church. Now, I don't know if you know much about Rockville. We're about 120 miles straight, diagonally northwest of here across uh, the, the, the D.C. Beltway. Uh, Montgomery County is statistically the most racial, ethnically diverse county in America. Uh, our public school system is literally a United Nations uh, I've walked through the halls, and at times I've gone, I've just actually did a little, kind of a, a, self, a little study in the moment, and how many Caucasians can I find? <laughs> and I typically, if I'm there for less than 10 minutes, might find one handful. I mean, it's just amazing. And so that comes with certain challenges, it comes with certain um, blessings, but our church is a reflection of that, which it should be. Uh, and it certainly comes with challenges in the body of Christ because we have so many different backgrounds, so many different types of people. All, we all speak English, which is a good thing in order to understand each other, but, but such different expectations of what worship and what um, ministry and what community can and should look like. And so we are so thankful for this church, for your prayers, for your support. Uh, for your elders who and your mission team that have come alongside of us to, to be a part of what we're doing. And I would uh, uh, just plead with you, please keep praying, because we need the Lord's help to be faithful in this call. Um, in fact, let me pray for God's word, and then I want to just 
continue that theme of the challenge that God has called us to. But let's pray. Father, we come before you now and we simply ask, would you help us? Help us, Lord, to receive from you. God, as the word is brought to our attention, as I speak, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts by your spirit, that you would give to us increased vision and faith, a Lord, conviction to be doing what you've called us to, Lord, to know who we are in Christ and then to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. And so we give you this time and we pray that you would be glorified and that you would accomplish your work in Jesus' name. Amen. I, uh, we started this, this church plant in Rockville um, publicly back in uh, October of this past year. So we've been going for less than a year. And so it is. We're very infantile. Okay. Uh, prior to that, I was serving in a, a, a church in Montgomery County. And it, honestly, it was hard to leave that church in some ways. Um, it had three basketball courts. <laughs> oh, yeah. You think you're special because you got the one. Yeah, but I love basketball gyms. And it had all the bells and whistles. It had 22 pastors on staff. Uh, yes, it was a mega church, and uh, the Lord had given me a fruitful ministry there. And for various reasons, He called us out of that church, and He called us to plant a church in Rockville. Uh, we're one of only two church plants in the city, which is the county seat of a million-person county. There's only one of we're one of two church plants in the city. It's, it, it's incredible to me. And the other one, I, I'm not sure. If What's ha happening with it? There's another one who just that recently died that no longer exists. Uh, Rockville, as a city, is a city that, um, in terms of the church, is there's a significant Roman Catholic population, uh, but the other churches are basically they're liberal Protestants, and so literally the churches are dying in Rockville because they're aging out, and they're beautiful buildings. There's still a lot of money, but there aren't a lot of people, and there's a whole, not a whole lot of life. Uh, spiritual life. And so God has called us into the city, and, and being such a young, immature, <laughs> new work, uh, we are uh, just a, there's just a tenuousness to, every, to, to what we're doing. There's a dynamic tenuousness because we're, we're in the forming process, and it's hard work, and it's a little bit scary. And it's also a little bit exciting, too, okay, and, and, and a lot of it fun. But we don't know if we're going to be around in six months. We don't know if we're going to be around in a year, much less five years, because we don't know how God's going to shape us and work in us. We, we're working towards that. We're praying towards that. But there's no guarantee. And so we're trusting the Lord. But here's what it takes. And I want to turn our attention to Acts chapter 16, because we have here the beginning of the church at Philippi, a church plant in the city of Philippi. And look how it begins, beginning with verse 6 of chapter 16. And so they, Paul and Silas, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, that's interesting. <laughs> I look back and think, God didn't allow me to stay in this big, comfortable church. 
called me out of it into this instead of a church with thousands it called me to a church with zero <laughs> well unless you count my wife and seven children back then it was only six we just adopted so you know okay that's a little church plant grown but <laughs> i'm not sure if my children would have voted for planting if they had known what that they were going to be the youth group and the choir and no it's it's not quite that bad but it's you know it's small it's small beginnings and God can hinder us and close doors and, and shut things down in ways that we don't want and we don't expect. And then he calls us to something else. But that's the first thing that we need to do God's work is we need a sense of his call, a faith that this is what God wants. And so here's what we see. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, very famous, the man of Macedonia, very mysterious who knows what he looked like? People have tried to draw it, right? But this man of Macedonia was standing there in his vision, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. I didn't have any visions like that, just so you know. No man of Macedonia in my sleep or in my dreams saying, come to Rockville. We figured it out through just more reasonable things like, hey, it was close and they needed gospel witness. And our mother church thought it was a good idea. You know, it was pretty practical, but, but we definitely have a sense of the call. God was calling us to plant in the city of Rockville. Now, I'm certainly no Paul but I do feel like our church is a little bit, and our city is a little bit like the city of Philippi. And so just like we needed God's call clearly to, to do this, something which was way be, bigger and beyond us, there was a second thing that was necessary for us to be able to, to plant, and that is simply this, the gospel. That is something that we've been given, God has accomplished, and that is what God has called us to bring to Rockville. The gospel is everything. It is the one distinguishing factor of who we are as a church. It is our sine qua non. It is that which without which we don't exist. We are not. It is our defining characteristic. And so with God's call and with the gospel, we have what we need to be able to plant a church. And we're praying for people too. The city of Philippi is uh, similar to Rockville in a number of ways, or, and I, I'm sure similar to here, California. Are we in California or Lexington Park? Yes, okay. <laughs> By the way, I had a lot of fun with my kids. Uh, we're from California, mind you. Uh, my wife was born and raised in San Francisco. We, um, most of my kids were born in California, so families over there, and so we love California, and so I... I was messing with them. I said, kids, I'm going to be preaching in California this weekend. Who wants to go? <laughs> Me! And uh, I said, okay, well, we got to get up at 6 o'clock, and we'll be uh, back by the end of the day. What? That doesn't sound any fun. Uh, and it's just a two-hour drive. No biggie. Like, anyway, they figured it out. But, uh, and bottom line is none of them came with me. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but here I am, and I'm glad to be here. So Philippi is a significant city. It is a city that was a Roman colony. It had been colonized by 
the Romans by many of their for, former soldiers being situated there. Okay, so there was a very military background, a lot of retired military. Hmm, sounds interesting, doesn't it? It was a city that was diverse, it was privileged, it was religious in one sense. Because the religion of Philippi was a state or a, or a status, a civic religion, because there was a, very much a cult worship of the state, of the Roman emperor and the Roman government. So there were lots of monuments to the imperial cult. And so what we might call the religion, the civic religion, is a public religion which must serve the public good. And so that comes with a lot of interest and uh, prioritizing of money and of power, and of the government. And so in many ways, it was a very secular religion. Again, boy, that sounds a little familiar to us. And so what Paul, we see here in Acts chapter 16, we see the beginnings of and the forming of a gospel community in the midst of a a city, a church plant that is budding. And it's what's fascinating is the account of who God saves, who is converted to, to make up this beginning, this budding church plant. It's fascinating. There are three people, and, and if you know the book of Acts, you're familiar with these three. You've got Lydia, the savvy and likely wealthy businesswoman. She would represent a religious group. Secondly, you have an oppressed Uh, exploited slave girl. And then third, you have the, uh, the jailer, the Philippian jailer, who really represents a very secular group of people. And so I want us to look at these three in the time that we have uh, and, and just make some points as to how do, what does it's helping me to understand how should we church plant? What does a church plant look like? How does God move forward? And I think it will be relevant for you all as a, an established church, even as God has called you to be a faithful gospel witness right here. First of all, the religious businesswoman. This is Lydia. Just read a little bit of this, uh, starting with verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, if you were going to plan a church and you didn't have anybody in the city that you knew and you didn't know, where would you begin? Where would you go to get your first converts or your first interested, your core group? Would you go to a women's prayer meeting by the river? Maybe. I mean, Paul went to actually lots of different places. He sometimes went to the Areopagus in, in Athens. Typically, he would go to a synagogue. Okay, where people would already have an an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, this is a woman, Lydia, who we know is a seller of purple goods, which, again, back in that day, if you were selling purple goods, you were dealing in in wealthy business. Because the only people who bought clothes or materials of that were dyed in purple were people who were wealthy. 
So she was a wealthy businesswoman dealing with other wealthy people. But she was also a religious wealthy woman. She was at a prayer meeting. She was a God-fearer, somebody who, who was following the, the customs of the Jews. And so on the Sabbath day, Saturday, she was out there doing just that. And one of the things I think we can tell from, from this first example, this first conversion in the church plant of Philippi, is that God goes after religious people. I thank God for that, by the way. God is interested in religious people. He's interested in churchy people. People like you and me. He doesn't assume, Paul doesn't assume, and the gospel doesn't assume that just because somebody is a, in the pew, somebody who's in the chair, somebody who comes to church regularly, and even people who are members of the church are necessarily Christians, people who are saved. They need the gospel. Uh, the example that comes to my mind is, is Wesley. Remember um, the Wesley's two brothers who started up the Methodist church? And John Wesley very famously gives an account of his conversion. And when he heard the gospel preach and he had this, this conversionary experience, well, guess what? That conversion was after he'd already started a holy club. Yeah, yeah, he was all about obeying God's word and being faithful. These people were holy, so holy they called themselves the holy club. This was after they did missionary work in the, in the new world and Georgia and even after all these things, it was, it was after that he came to a saving faith in his own account. And so the gospel is for religious people. Now, now, even for those of us, we who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who we know that we have a saving faith, we still need the gospel day in and day out. We need to hear the truth that we are in need of a savior we need to hear the truth. It is not by our works and by our righteousness by which we are brought into the presence of God and that we are delivered and forgiven. The gospel, friends, is for religious people. The first person who signed up for our church plant was a religious person. Her name was Susan. Her name is Susan. And I was sitting in my office a couple years ago, and I knew my time was coming to an end at my former church, and we were, we were contemplating the next move, praying, and I was having this meeting with her, with Susan, talking and praying, and, and she said to me, Ben, have you thought about church planning? Because if you do, I want to go with you. Now... That in itself, it was just kind of blew me away, and it's like, whoa, what, maybe, but what really blew me away is this is a woman who's been walking with the Lord many years. She's, at the time, 79 years old. My first church planter was a 79-year-old woman. She has family who goes to PCA churches in Gaithersburg. Children and grandchildren, and she, but God put on her heart, she wanted to be a part of gospel mission. I just was blown away by that, and I praise God that that was my first, not convert, but first church planter. Then we get the second example, second convert here in the 
Philippian church. This exploited slave girl. Here's an example of someone who's almost the, the diametric opposite of the first. Lydia, the religious, privileged, educated, wealthy woman. And then we're told of the convert, well, of this slave girl who is being exploited by her owners for their personal financial gain. We don't know her background. We don't know, but you can imagine the abuse. You can imagine the pain. You can, it, the life that she's had to live as a likely a young lady in that culture, in that society, and just the utter powerlessness of her life. No ability whatsoever to pull herself up by the bootstraps, to change her life, to change her circumstances. This is the second example. And this is a reminder, friends, that just as religious people need the gospel, so do oppressed people, rejected people, ostracized people, those who, who, who who are under the thumb of a society that rejects them, that takes advantage of them, that abuses them. And this girl is reached in a very different way, isn't she? Whereas Lydia is reached through the, if you want to call them the ordinary means of grace, teaching, discipleship, preaching, and she's converted. God opens up Lydia's heart by his sovereign grace. Well, God, in his sovereign grace, also goes after this exploited slave girl. But she's reached through a deliverance, which is a very odd and interesting deliverance because what we're told here is that, ironically, she's speaking truth. <laughs> Look, notice what she says here. She is following Paul around and she's crying out, These men, Paul and Silas, are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And Paul is irritated by that. Annoyed. The word there is is so strong, it's actually piercing fatigue. Paul is wearied by the slave girl declaring who he is and what he's doing. And I think part of it is just simply because, you know, Satan and his minions do speak truth, don't they? But for their evil purposes. In order to, de- to lie, to deceive, to kill, and to destroy not to glorify God. And Paul's had enough. And so he casts out this evil spirit from her. And so she, on account of the evil spirit, is able to divine the future. And by the way, we, we as Reformed Christians, we believe that there is supernatural power that is distinct from divine power. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is a dark and evil world. We fight not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spirits. There is a supernatural power that is out there that is at work. It's not divine power. It's not God's power, but it is. There is a power there. And that is apparently what's going on here with this. She is predicting the future and people are getting rich through that, where they're making money anyway. 
And Paul's had enough, and so he exercises, gets rid of that spirit, and so now she is not bringing them any more money, and they are ticked off. Because, you know, when the world, when we are out there and we're doing the work that God has called us to, you know, it's all good and well if we're saying nice things and doing nice things, but you know what? We start affecting their pocketbook. If we start affecting the bottom line, if the numbers start to diminish, it's amazing how ugly things can get quickly and the opposition that will arise. I want to say one other thing about this, this young lady. Did you notice that we're not given her name? And we're not told what happens to her. We're not actually even told whether she was converted. <laughs> we're told that her, the, the spirit was, del- she was delivered from the evil spirit. She was freed up from the bondage, okay? But we're not told what happened to her. And in fact, whereas Lydia and the Philippian jailer, we're told very specifically, are baptized, okay, and they, they, we see the fruit of their baptism, they invite them in, they clean wounds and, and doing, all the, doing good things. We're not told that. We're there. And it just, I want to speculate with you for just a minute, because I think it speaks to something about church planting. You see, church planting and ministry in general, if we're doing what God calls us to, is, it isn't clean. It's messy. It's full of hard difficult trials and disappointments. If we're going to go out and hit the streets with the gospel and get our hands dirty in the lives of sinful people who are oppressed, guess what? Crazy things will happen. We're, we're going to find things that, that we didn't... We're going, to, we're going to spend time and effort and it's not going to turn out the way that we wanted. And I speculate that with this situation as... Again, this is real history that's being recorded for us. We're not told what happened because it may have been messy. It may have been ongoing, even. Are we willing to take risks in ministry, folks? Is this church willing to get messy for the sake of the gospel? To do the dirty work of gospel ministry? Because the truth is, when you take risks with the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, things don't always turn out the way that you had hoped and planned, according to our plans. There was a man who I invested a great deal of time. His name was John. Um, And he was a man who had his own demons uh, that he came out of. uh, Very drug-lived life, uh, to the point where he his... He wasn't all there all the time. It just a lifestyle of, of drugs and reckless living. And, and yet, he came to Christ. He came to the Lord. And you know what? That didn't change many of his problems. Yeah, he was interviewed by the elders. He was, he was baptized and he was brought in as a member of the church. But he still had, it included depression and it included just um, self-loathing and Real hardships, and so much time was spent counseling him, caring for him, walking with him. And three years later, after he joined the church, he came to us, and I saw this coming, but he came to us and said, I'm not a Christian. 
I want to be taken off the rolls of the church. And we did. It was, it was church discipline. It was very uh, painful church discipline. Uh, not because he was living a scandalous life, because he was, he was convinced he was not a believer. Now, that's not the way I drew it up when I spent all those hours with him counseling and pastoring. But that, I don't regret for a minute the time that was spent. That was what God called me to. And the story's not over, by the way, with his life. Sometimes God uses our weakness, God uses our faith in ways that we can't even comprehend, and yet we're called to minister to the oppressed, to the exploited, to the weakest. And that's a part of church planting, that's a part of ministry. Third, I want to go to the blue-collar jailer. And this is an example of a secular person that the gospel reaches. This is the Philippian jailer and his conversion. So let's read about this one. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. This is after Paul and Silas have been beaten with rods, and they're thrown into the inner prison. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. What an incredible conversion this is. Paul and Silas bleeding, just broken. I can't even imagine what that would be like in prison, and they're singing hymns. Now, Paul's an apostle. I love what uh, G. Campbell Morgan says in his commentary about this. Is that he says, I think that Paul would probably have sung a solo had I been Silas. You get that? Be, I, would you be singing hymns in that situation? I think I, I'm with G. Campbell. I, Paul would be singing alone there. And in the midst of this terrible situation, not what they had anticipated, not what they had wanted. God steps in. God intervenes. God acts with an incredible earthquake that shakes the prison, unlocks the chains, and they are free. But this leaves a huge problem for the jailer because the jailer is a man of duty, a man of honor, a man of action. And he knows the situation. He is responsible for these prisoners. And if they are, if they escape, his life is over. And so he's going to just go ahead and finish it himself and not leave it to anyone else. And so he's going to kill himself. 
And so, yeah, he's a man of action and honor, but there's another thing that we can probably see about the jailer. He's also a callous man. Now, I'm getting that by implication here, but try to imagine Paul and Silas singing. All, we're told that all the other people in the prison are listening. What's, what's the jailer doing? Sleeping. <laughs> Did you notice that? He awakes to the earthquake, and it's at that point he takes action because that's, that's when it, you know, he knows I'm, this is trouble. It's not the singing. It's not the religion. It's not the praising God that affects him because you know what? He is a hard hearted, strong, self-sufficient man. You know any men like that? (laughs) Some of you are like, no, nobody. He's callous. You see, he would be an example of a secular person. And just like God goes after religious people with the gospel, and God goes after oppressed people with the gospel, God also goes after secular people with the gospel. But here's the thing. I'm convinced that in some ways, secular people need a miracle more than anyone. I minister in a very secular city. And then you may too as well. This is where maybe we're connected here. We are, after all, in Maryland. (laughs) Rockville is a city made up of very intelligent, educated, um, job-driven, finance-driven, education-driven people who uh, tend to be pretty self-sufficient. And you know, there is an aspect where, in a real sense, they are not seeking after God at all. The Bible actually says no man seeks after God. Well, that would definitely be true for the vast majority of people in Rockville. They are not seeking after God. They're seeking after credentials, and comfort and vacations and retirement, but not really after God. And so it's interesting because in trying to minister in that context, it's harder to go after them in some ways because in many, in, in, in a significant way, they don't really feel like they have any needs. They're oblivious to it anyway. And so in in their situation, like the Philippian jailer, God goes to them. God goes after them. Now, in this situation, God reaches the Philippian jailer through an earthquake. (laughs) And that, of course, I haven't experienced any earthquakes yet in Rockville. And yet, what I see very clearly is that God's after them. They may not know it. They may not want it, but God is after secular people in Rockville, just like he's after secular people here in Lexington Park or California or both. Secular people need the gospel, friends. I have a a young man in his 30s who just recently came to the Lord in our church and uh, was baptized two months ago. And he was a very secular man before, and he, he makes... He's single, single ladies, by the way. The dude's huge, muscled like crazy. He's, he used to be an MMA fighter. Yeah, oh yeah, now you're getting interested, huh, ladies? Okay. <laughs> he's got a great job. He's, he owns his own house as a single man. 
But he was a, oh yeah, okay. I'm getting you. I'm, I can hear it. But he lived a very secular life. He graduated from VMI. was in the military for a time. He's a real stud, honestly. But he didn't know Jesus at all. But God took a hold of his heart, reached him. It wasn't through an earthquake. I'm not even sure exactly how. Actually, I do know. It was through a girlfriend who came to our church. And he started coming to church because of her. Had nothing to do with the church. Well, that was his earthquake. And you know what? The girl left. And they broke up. And he got baptized. And he's now a member of our church. Three very different people. Three very different ways to reach these people. Three very different conversions. One church plant. One gospel. One gospel community. And so I want to just close here, wrap this up, by giving six implications, very briefly, applications, if you will, takeaways for you to consider, certainly for us to consider in what God has called us to, because we're all doing gospel ministry. That's what God has called us to, whether we're established or whether we're brand new as a church. And so here are the six takeaways for us. First of all, go to whom the Lord leads. Go to whom the Lord leads. You never know. It may surprise you. In fact, it probably will, because oftentimes we think we're going this way and God takes us that way. And we're like, okay, this is why. But it's for us to be willing and open to go to surprising places in order to do what he's called us to do. Because the gospel is for all types. It's not just for people who look like us and who act like us, who speak like us. So go to whom the Lord leads. Secondly, preach Jesus. Friends, the gospel is what makes us distinct. It is what separates us. It is our unifying message. My concern is that so oftentimes the church of Jesus Christ preaches Jesus and. And it's the and that becomes the distinctive. It's what becomes the unifying message. And so it's the gospel and a certain type of education for our children. Or the gospel and... This is how we baptize. The gospel and this is what worship should look like. And the songs that we sing. And that becomes a distinctive. That becomes a unifying factor. When the only unifying factor amongst these three is simply Christ. And what he's accomplished. It is the power of God unto salvation which brought them into a relationship Not only with God, but with the church community as well. So preach Jesus. That's number two. Three, pursue and expect conversions. Friends, God has people right here in this city that he is drawing and calling. But how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without someone to preach? And yet, we can get so busy doing church that we forget to pursue and to pray and to expect. That's one of the benefits of church planting, by the way, is that because we don't have anybody. We have a few people now. (laughs) 
But when we started, we didn't have me. So you know what? When you don't have me, you're desperate. You'll go, you'll go after anybody. And anybody who comes in, you're just like, praise God, somebody. And you see, when you're established, it's harder to have that kind of desperateness for souls. But pursue and expect conversions. Four, plan for diversity. Plan for diversity. Now, I don't necessarily mean like plan for diversity like we plan for it in Montgomery County, being the most diverse county in America. But, I mean, there's different types of diversity, social economic diversity, ecclesiastical diversity, theological diversity, certainly generational diversity. I honestly, I just, I have a real kind of a thing with churches that are only made up of single 20-somethings. I'm not sure how that works, but it certainly does not fit the Philippian model. But the thing about planning for diversity is, is that you also need to plan for the discomfort that comes with diversity. My, my kids, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, older folks, they, they, they don't really get older people. Maybe some of you kids are like, oh, I don't know, I feel so uncomfortable. But I'm so glad they have to deal with older people in our church. You know, some of, by the way, some of our older people at church, are the, they are the bedrock of our church plant. But yeah, we got it all the way from the babies to the teenagers to the college students to the senior citizens, my first church planter. Plan for it, but prepare as well for the discomfort that comes with it. Five, expect trials and opposition. It's going to come. If we're faithful to gospel ministry, if we're really getting into the trenches, we can be assured that we will face trials and opposition. And it may be in ways that will surprise us. It may be ways that will knock us over. But, but God is there and he is faithful to lift you back up and to give you the grace and the help that you need to be able to fulfill the call. Finally, six, expect God to show up. But however he sees fit. I'd love for there to be an earthquake, folks. <laughs> or something similar, you know. Something that just grabs everybody in Rockville and says, you need to confess Christ. You need to bend the knee and bow the head and believe in the God who offers you salvation and forgiveness and grace. I'd love that, but you know what? He hasn't given me an earthquake. He hasn't given to me a miracle that I'm aware of, but he gives to me what I need, and he does show up. We've had a couple of conversions in our church that have just blown us away. They surprised us. And we're, we're wanting, praying, and expecting more. But here's the thing. God will show up because the gospel is powerful. Our God is powerful. And he wants to save many, to draw many unto himself and to make worshipers. So however he sees fit. Brothers and sisters, friends, uh, I, I just, I'm here to encourage you to the call that God has given to you right here in this city, right here in this community, and to be the church that God has called you to be, because at the end of the day, we're partners in ministry. 
we feel your support in various ways. We, we ask that you would continue to support us in praying for us and in, in encouraging us in this work. But I'm here to encourage you and to support you in this work as well. Just to be able to, to bring this word to you and to, and to call you to be faithful. To call you to step forward. To call you to, to link up arms in being a gospel witness right here. A gospel community right here. And to see God work. And to be glorified in your midst. That's my prayer for you all. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a glorious, beautiful, sublime truth, and not only truth, but reality that you have brought us into, that we might have fellowship with you, that we might be loved by you, that we would have eternal life with you, and that with one another in Christ Jesus, fellowship and unity and life. God, is there anything more glorious, more powerful, more wonderful? And yet there's so many who, who are going down the path of destruction, the path of damnation. God, have mercy. And I pray, God, for this church, for, for Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, that you would cause for this church to stand together, to pray together, to work together, to fight together for the work of the gospel. Make this a gospel community. Grow this church and show yourself in all your power, glory, and grace, I pray. Do what we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.